Welcome to the Celtics Pride Podcast. We drop on Tuesdays, typically on the Celtics Blog Podcast feed. I am Adam Motenko. With me, as always, is my twin brother, Josh Motenko. That's right. Sharing Celtics knowledge since D. Brown pumped up his shoes. And our good friend, Mike Minkoff. How's it going, Mike? It's going all right, gentlemen. How are you guys doing? Doing well. Today on the pod, we discuss the status of the league's return. We are going to get into whether the Celtics are constructed in the Warriors' image after seeing their dynasty. Has Danny Ainge Ainge been trying to construct the Celtics to fit and to match and to uh, sort of embody the the, uh, Warriors' uh, winning streak, which may or may not continue as we move forward here in in the seasons to come. And we are going to continue with uh, our stories from Celtics history, which are now ending every podcast. You guys, did you see that there is a a memo expected from Adam Silver's office on June 1st with instructions to players and others about next steps for the league's return? And I think I saw uh, a rumor about a potential July 15th start to uh, the 20 or restart to the 2019-2020 season. I saw that people said those things happened. <laughs> yeah, how are you feeling about that? I'm, I'm feeling slightly better about the bet that we've made. I'm not. I'm not feeling great about the bet uh, where we we bet on a brisket. Um, Josh and I would owe you brisket if the there's a championship crown this season. I'm not feeling good about the prospect of having to uh, procure and provide said brisket. Right now, it's looking increasingly likely. But I guess uh, on the on the silver lining there is there might be some actual NBA basketball played this year, but that's about it. That's all, you know, who, who knows? Yeah. It's interesting yeah. to see. Go ahead, Josh. Oh, nothing. I was going to say, you, you know, this is uh, July 15th is a long way away in COVID years. And uh, <laughs> I don't feel any less confident that this, that, that I'm going to win the bet. I don't, I don't see us coming back and playing. There's a, you know, I see Adam Silver as um, trying to make a lot of people happy right now by setting a date and setting a plan into action. And then we still wait and see how it goes. And, and I think that he could easily pull the plug uh, for safety reasons as, as we see how states open up and how that goes. Uh, I'm still cautiously optimistic. Yeah. So we have an About old the segment. Bet, not the we, league returning. <laughs> we have an old segment on this podcast called I'm not a doctor, but I play one on this podcast where we've discussed things like uh, Robert Williams, hip bone edema, 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 Clearly, I'm not a doctor, but I definitely did research on what on the inflammation in his hip and and gave my opinion on it. And it makes me feel like there's a special edition during COVID of I'm not a doctor, but I play one on this po- podcast where I want to play a public health PhD. And and given the timeline that they're talking about with a July 15th start, I'm thinking, yeah, that's just enough time for states, a lot of states to reopen in, in various ways and for us to see another spike in cases and deaths. Um, and so it's, what's interesting to me is that the, um, prevalence of, uh, testing has increased and that was, it seemed like the biggest issue that was preventing, uh, I mean, other than obvious health concerns, but testing was the biggest issue, um, with the NBA creating a quarantined environment. They didn't want to use all of the testing and potentially do it on a daily basis. I'm not sure if they're still considering that, um, if the rest of the public didn't have access, well, now that access has increased, uh, the the optics of using testing to a large degree for the NBA is are, are far reduced, so they're not going to look like the bad guys if they do that. Um, and I still think even 
even if um, we have increase in cases, you can still create a quarantined environment, which would have the results that the, the, the nationwide quarantine has had over the last couple of months. So Do get ready for care? opening, go, get ready for opening and closing again, potentially, and then opening again and then closing again. Are you saying nationally or are you saying the NBA? Yeah, the NBA and, and in a lot of different sectors in business. Well, I mean, this is this is what uh, this is why I'm playing a a, PA, a public health PhD. We th- this is what they were predicting would happen. You had to close everything down, and the cases would reduce. And once you open them up again, unless you have herd immunity or you have um, um, immunization, then you're going to get a, another spike in cases. That's just normal. Um, and so the NBA can create a quarantined environment as long as people are are um, don't have it. They can manage the spread of it within that bubble. The campus, as Silver likes to call it now. Yeah. The campus. I like that term. Yeah. Uh, I, it also means... Go ahead, Go Josh. ahead, Mike. Oh, okay. I'll go. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, Adam, you asked, do we care? I, you know, there's just so much that we have to see, basically, about how this actually rolls out. And at the end of the day, I think there's the NBA is going to face some reputational risk. If, if something really bad happens, like a, a family member of a player in this campus environment gets it and falls ill and, and passes away. Um, or, or even somebody, you know, in the NBA, one, an NBA staff member or, or team staff member. Um, at, at the same time, the NBA would probably argue that there's going to be risk wherever anybody is. Uh, and they they can probably create a situation that that reduces that risk relative to um, the 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 broader the broader U- U.S. right now. So we'll see. We'll see. Um, it's certainly they're going to do everything they can to play, which is what you've been saying all along. So I got to give credit where it's due. You got to follow listen. the money. Follow the money, Mike. Josh, last thought. You can open the bubble and you can put everybody in the bubble and you can start on July 15th and then we'll see where we are on August 5th. And it, you know, all it takes is for one person to become infected within the bubble and we'll see how everybody reacts. So uh, the bottom line is that the brisket doesn't come until the season is finished. And so that's what really matters. I'm definitely with Josh on that. <laughs> <laughs> I accept, I, uh, it's fine with me. I accept that. Uh, so hopefully this season, it's it's looking increasingly like uh, there's at least a greater chance than there was a couple months ago that this season will resume. We think the Celtics have an outside shot at the championship, basically what the Warriors and, and uh, LeBron's teams have been winning the past few years. And Josh, you've, you believe firmly, it seems, that uh, we can do a roster analysis of the Celtics and see a lot of modeling of what the Warriors have built over the past few years. So yeah, this to me is like an old storyline. I feel like I'm dusting off because the Celtics young guys have finally grown up a little bit. And I mean, now we're even younger because we got more rookies on the team and because the Warriors have been no good for the past year. So no one's been talking like they were for four or five years previous to that, where everybody was trying to be like the Warriors, the dynasty. And really, I feel like there's only a couple of teams around the league that actually built teams in their image and i felt like it was a common storyline you can go to ringer articles and i feel like it you know celtics blog has has had stories about the celtics being built in the warriors image or being modeled after the warriors in terms of a personnel construction um idea so 
but you know, then then we were talking about this offline before the pod, and you know, Mike, you had never heard of this idea before. No, I, it sounds vaguely familiar. I I don't. It's, when you mentioned like a couple Ringer articles, and I I'm, I think did Jonathan Jonathan Sharks write about it as well as Kevin O'Connor. I I think I seem to vaguely remember that, but uh, yeah, it's it's not. Well, I, I want to hear more, um, Josh, about about your perspective here. I want I want to hear more about this theory that you're dusting off. Educate so me. Think, yeah, think back a couple years ago, and you know the Celtics. We've got this young core. We've got Kyrie. We we're going up against the Warriors, and we had some good games against them. You know, even with Durant on their team, and it felt like we could hang with them, but they would beat us. You know, they would always beat us, like they did with everybody. But it felt like we wait could the Warriors. Hang. The Warriors. No, yeah, we I actually felt, always split with them. So yeah. I felt I had this this feeling like like we're close. Obviously, we're not there at their level, whether we split or not. It's it's like they're they're the team to beat, but also like we're kind of like them, and I see it in all different types of ways. So, you know, one of the ways in which I feel like we were built in the Warriors' image was the way the league changed over the last couple of years. You know, devaluing the center position, some small ball concepts. Um, like underpaying centers because of devaluing that positional value, uh, reinventing the power forward position, like Tatum can slide over and play some four or can play the majority at four potentially because he's the best rebounder of all our wings. And that was kind of Durant's thing is he was, he was that small ball five, that power forward, that three man who could, who played like a big wing. And I mean, even that idea, like getting a bunch of big wings that's the Celtics' advantage right now is we got Gordon Hayward on a smaller guy because they're running around chasing Tatum and Brown. Um, and, and just the size of our wings, you look at Clay Thompson, you look at Durant, you know, you look at Draymond, like those guys are, are, are bigger. They're the Paul Pierce's of the wing. And you used to be you get one of those guys and you're happy. And Danny Ainge decided let's try to get two of those guys or three of those guys um, to have that mismatch. So are you not seeing the similarities there, Mike? Yeah, I actually, I think everything you just said points out a lack of similarity. So what I, I mean, look, the Warriors obviously were the best team in the NBA from 2015 through 2018. And uh, the Cavs do in no small part to Draymond having a mental blip in the middle of the finals. Uh, stole stole a finals victory in the middle there, and not to mention obviously LeBron James's greatness. But um, the 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 model that I see with the Warriors is first of all they have two of the best outside shooters ever. Period. Um, nothing about the Celtics model replicates that. They have. Draymond is a is a truly unique player historically. Um, the the Celtics have Marcus Smart, who is a mini Draymond in, in a lot of ways, but he doesn't he doesn't bring everything that Draymond brought um, because he he doesn't much despite he doesn't actually have the uh, ability to match up against all centers and be our <laughs> our main center, uh, though he he sometimes operates as such. Um, I, you know, you mentioned that the Celtics have and targeted versatile wings 
And I think that's a distinct differentiation from the the Warriors model. The way I see the Celtics is that under, you know, and, and I think this is a credit to Danny Ainge because the way he's approached personnel decisions has notably changed from when we had Doc Rivers to, to now uh, when we have Brad Stevens. And so he's developing a roster that fits with the type of versatile ball movement oriented system that uh, Brad Stevens wants to run. And that involves a lot of offensively and defensively interchangeable pieces. So he's targeted a Jalen Brown, a Jason Tatum, a Gordon Hayward, um, who can all, who are super fungible uh, within the, the construct of an offense. And as you noted, that makes it really hard for defenses, defenses to match up. But of those three, Maybe maybe one, if we're lucky, Jason Tatum can be an all-time great at anything. The Warriors have three or four all-time greats on their roster. So I don't, I don't see the Celtics trying to emulate the Warriors. I see the Celtics recognizing the, the value in having high IQ players, high character players, hardworking players that ha- are, are elite or very high-level athletes um and have the potential and ability to be interchangeable and and recognizing that that's the direction that you need to go uh to be an elite basketball team in the current nba i think that the both teams and other teams in the league have have approached roster building from a a pace and space an analytic driven uh way uh where they're valuing wings at a higher rate and switchability and, and devaluing centers in the way that Josh described where they're not paying them that much. I think Mike, you're right that the specific members of the roster are, are different types of players. I mean, it's, it's impossible to replicate getting the two of the greatest shooters of all time on a team um, or the kind of a, um, a unicorn that Draymond is, but Horford was the Celtics attempt to, to have a, a Draymond Green, a switchable big, I mean, they certainly value that. We know that. Um, and and that's one of the reasons they didn't re-sign him as he was going to slow down and make too much money. Um, I, the Milwaukee Bucks have have focused on wings and length. Um, other teams have as well. I, I mean, that's been increasing. But I think the Celtics were the one of the first to uh, follow the Warriors in, in that um, strategy. But, I got to side with Josh. But so, so wait, listen. wait. I just want to. I just want to ask one question. I'm not going to go into it. But the the Warriors weren't the first to do this stuff. Wrong. The, the Spurs uh, that won the championship in 1314 played quote unquote the beautiful game. That that team was the best small ball team ever assembled. They had Tim Duncan, but the the rest of that roster was outside the arc. They spread the floor. They passed the ball amazingly. Who was their power forward? Kawhi Leonard. He was not playing the four. He was playing the three. Who was playing the four? It was Kawhi Leonard. Duncan so always played the four, right? they had, No, they had Duncan. They had Tiago Splitter coming off the bench. Um, oh, that was the year they moved him to center. Yeah. they And then the year before that, the Heat were also playing small ball and we lost in 2000 and two years before that, we lost in 2012 to the heat um, in game that game six, I think it was 
What was game six the one where LeBron went crazy? See, that was in 2012. No, but there in that series, Chris Bosch made some huge, huge threes. They were already starting to stretch the floor. But I think, and you you point to the Bucks. Mike Budenholzer is on the the Pop coaching tree. Kerr takes a lot from Pop. I I don't I don't I just don't see the Warriors have um, created this system. What I see is that they had all time generational talents to put into use for this system. But I th- I would give Pop like, much more of the originating credit than wow than the Warriors. So now we're remembering history differently too because. Uh, as I see it, the entire league did not shift over to shooting more threes until two, three years ago. And why did they do that? Because the team that was beating everybody had the two best shooters and were shooting a lot of threes and were revolutionizing the entire game. So even when the Spurs may have played Kawhi Leonard at some four spot minutes, they're still playing inside out basketball going through Tim Duncan. They're still, you know, it's, it didn't become this perimeter oriented, like four out and sometimes five out system that now the entire NBA has adopted. Um, because of the Warriors, you know, like nobody's sitting around thinking we're we're trying to like the Celtics at that time were trying to d- defend LeBron James and have multiple positional defenders that were big and strong to be able to guard that dude. That's their that's the way that they were constructing their roster, and then all of a sudden they switched. They went really young, and they were like, let's get a bunch of big wings who still are developing. Obviously, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, and Gordon Hayward are not like Steph and and clay in terms of their ability to shoot but if you look at tatum and brown specifically they're young enough where they could still develop and they're good enough shooters where they could become great shooters in my opinion if they continue to develop they're still so young so i think that there's still a possibility to have a team that really resembles the warriors i mean especially when you look at the point guard position and you've got steph curry and then for us you've got um kemba walker and obviously kyrie irving who are kind of like it seems obvious to me that Danny Ainge really wants a dynamic scoring guard who can shoot the three, you know, like that's, that's, he values that and and traded one for another one. I think that you could make the comparison there to Steph Curry and, and then, you know, on down the line, bigger wings, like even Clay Thompson, who, you know, he's got the ability to take over an entire playoff series um, at six, eight, you know, six, seven. So, uh, Adam, help me out here. Well, Josh, I'm just looking up the three-point a- a- attempts. Um, I, I, I just single-season individual leaders. There was definitely a spike in 2015-16 season when Steph uh, went from from like the 600s attempts uh, to eight, it's almost 900, and then uh, Harden joined him towards the top. Uh, pretty quickly thereafter, but it was really last year that Harden just blew it completely out of the water uh, and and brought it up to like a thousand attempts, which he was on pace for this year as well. Um, I I mean I I feel like there's more overlap here than than what we're acknowledging. So the the reason why it's so interesting to me is because I feel like the Celtics team is finally coming to fruition, and we we you know anytime you got a super super young team, you're looking at potential only because that's all you have to see. And so you're looking at what could Tatum be, what could Brown be, you know, what can Kyrie do for us? And and you're realizing like there's there's a you know, we're not we're we're gonna have to wait and see what this team is like in two years. Well, now two years is here, and the whole I think this is a subplot that will reoccur once we re, once we start playing next year, 
once the Warriors have gone through a little bit more of their rebuild here and retooled, which I think they could do really quickly, we'll, we'll touch on that in a little bit, um, that I think that we'll see this conversation and discussion in the national media be brought up again. I think obviously when the Celtics play the Warriors, this is this Mike, you will hear this and you'll you'll be reminded of this conversation then. Um, there's some kind of sub sub plots, I guess you could say, within our teams. Mike, you brought up one earlier of how Marcus Smart is like Draymond Green, right? And how Danny Ainge values that type of player on the roster. Right. If we played them, they'd have their own kind of side competition of who can impact the game more through intangibles, who can get called for flopping and anticipating the best position to draw fouls, um, you know, watching them jaw at each other. It's, it's a fun image. And just to think of how those guys are similar, um, you know, they're, they're definitely in my, in my list of players who impact the game with their intangibles, like right, right with Patrick Beverly, Drew Holiday, um, you know, the other kind of... Yeah, the other kind of like Dennis Rodman type players, you know, guys who just did the little things and, and had a huge impact. Um, and I think that even drafting Grant Williams is is a way of trying to get a Draymond Green out of the, you know, the late first, second round. Um, if you compare Draymond's stats with Grant Williams for their rookie years, they're like almost identical. Um, and obviously, if you remember, Draymond took a while to make an impact, but his his locker room presence i mean you're going to see this with grant williams next year when we have some new rookies they're all going to be looking at grant williams and he's going to be a mentor to every single one of them he's going to be helping guys out you know that's that's he understands how to do that he did that at tennessee and you know he's obviously doing that among the rookie class and anytime you can have a guy as a coach who just is always in the right position defensively he's the he becomes immediately valuable because he's the example for the other young guys especially the more talented ones of Watch what he does. You see why he's on the court? Okay, you got to do that in order to get on the court. Um, uh, yeah, I just think that playfulness, the loud, vibrant personality. Grant Williams seems like another Draymond Green. Like, like we'll have two, Marcus Smart and him. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree that Grant Williams has the the mental makeup and personality. I I still worry that his, his kind of physical tools aren't quite going to be enough to let him excel the way Draymond's been able to. Like, I, I don't think he's going to, I, I hope, I hope, I mean, I'm sure he's going to put in the work. So I hope he's going to be able to kind of be as, as agile as he needs to be to stay in front of guys on the perimeter. And then I'm not quite sure what he's going to need to do to be able to um, affect, you know, uh, be a defensive presence near, closer to the rim. But those are two things that Draymond does uh, that, you know, are are essential to kind of the way he can has been able to function as a cog for that that team on offense and defense. Yeah, I see. Obviously, length as a difference between the two guys. Yeah, but you, and, and we're obviously talking about one of the defensive player of the year candidates each year in Draymond Green, um, which I I don't see that happening as his career continues on, but he did that I, through positional smarts and intelligence and length <laughs> it's the length that worries me too <laughs> i see some of the draft picks that the celtics have made and and some recent roster moves by the warriors as as aligning in the way you're talking about josh also the the draft pick of romeo langford um jalen brown at the time was uh was a, a there were conflict, conflicting opinions about whether that was the right pick and i think the fact that he was he's a wing 
um, helped the Celtics make that that choice. Um, some of the centers that they've picked, uh, in addition to Grant Williams, Robert Williams, he's not this big. Uh, um, you know, he's he's super athletic. He's able to guard on the perimeter. He's that six nine super long wing, wingspan, um, similar to to um, Draymond without the the solid base. Um, and then on the Warriors side, you've got them trading D'Angelo Russell for Andrew Wiggins, um, where even when it's unclear exactly uh, um, who's going to be playing where, especially I'm thinking about going into next year with this number one draft pick. Um, I'm, I'm kind of expecting them to take the, um, the shooting guard out of Georgia. I'm forgetting his name. Um, or Anthony, to potentially- Anthony Edwards. Yeah, or to potentially trade Wiggins in that pick for somebody else. And I'd be surprised if it was uh, not somebody who was a rangy wing or super switchable and and continued um, bringing in talent that fit this pace and space era, which is exactly what the Celtics are doing. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I I just... I mean, I'm not saying that the teams are, are completely dissimilar. I just... I just don't see, I don't know. I guess I, I may, yeah, I don't know. The Warriors, the Warriors were the beneficiaries of, again, having like the greatest shooters in time and that, that revealed to the league in a, as well as kind of the, the advent and increasing adoption of analytics the the increased value of the three point the three pointer relative to the two pointer and so you know as you guys noted that opened up um, the floor and the increased the onus on on getting I don't know more more floor spacers but I I just think the Celtics were kind of operating seeking like generally recognize what was needed to be elite and as much as they were aware of what the warriors were doing, they were also identifying, you know, the types of players that could guard someone like a Giannis or someone like a Kawhi or someone like a LeBron James. And so, you know, that's, that's a big piece of their, the reason that the number three picks they had both went towards, you know, strong, large, you know, rangy, um, wing type players uh, and why they targeted both Kevin Durant and then Gordon Hayward. I I just don't, I don't see it. I I just don't see it as them copying the warriors to copy the warriors. I I see it as both the warriors and the Celtics recognized what was needed and pursued similar things. Yeah. In some ways this is a chicken or the egg. Yeah. And and so I, I mean, I, I generally agree with, with the, the similarities. I just disagree with the rationale behind them. I think, I think that's where I disagree or like, that's what I struggle with here. I just don't, I give Danny Ainge and Brad Stevens too much credit to, to think that like they needed the warriors to show them some of these things before they realized they were a good idea. Wow. It seems so obvious to me that the warriors and specifically Steph Curry reinvented how the entire game is played. I mean, he created an entire new scoring area for the game of basketball that had never been an area where people could score from before between the three point line and the half court line became his area where he would just pull up and hit shots that that would never considered a good shot by any coach in the history of the game. 
I mean, so he, you don't have completely... you don't have Dame Lillard, Trey Young, um, other players like that taking those shots. You're saying without Steph Curry doing it and, and doing it well. Correct. I think that Steph Curry playing like a video game, like he's playing an NBA Jam, like back in '95, like he's heating up, and everybody around the league, coaches specifically, had to realize and recognize. Okay, fine, we'll allow that. We'll allow one pass off of no shots. Uh, sorry, one shot off of no passes in an offense. Dribble it up, and if you're open, shoot it. And we'll allow you to catch and shoot and, and just take long 30-footers. So, Josh, other than Tremont Waters in the G League, how are the Celtics applying the use of that new space? Oh, I don't think, I mean, I don't think they are doing that. I think there's only a handful of players who, who are shooting those shots. Like you said, Dame, Trey, Harden. Um, you know, I think there's like Tatum is copying the sidestep move and the step back move from Harden and, and Steph Curry. But it just seems so clear to me that, that the game was different before Steph Curry and before the Warriors went on this run. And, and I don't, I feel like if you're trying to beat Jordan, you need to come up with something better or you need to be able to guard Jordan. Right. And so the Pistons and the Knicks, roughed him up and that worked a little bit but really it didn't work overall right no one could beat jordan when you got a, a dynasty you need to beat that dynasty by coming up with something better or by modeling them and often that drives the entire the hiring of of new general managers so personnel decisions in front offices it drives the the entire context of the the direction of the evolution of the game um so to me, I don't know. Yeah, I don't want to keep uh, beating the dead horse, but to me, it's it's obvious. And I think that the most interesting part about this is that this this horse being the Warriors is not dead. Like they seem like they they may be done, but I feel like Adam, you brought up some good points. If they were able to draft somebody who fit with their team, which I, I have some some ideas of a couple guys in that top five who who I think would be perfect fit for them um, at several different positions, and at the same time, there's they could package that pick with Andrew Wiggins and really get something. That seems like the sleeping giant. Like, what can they get for that the number one pick potentially? Uh, even in a draft that I don't think is everyone's excited about. Still, uh, I think that there's one one player who's above all the rest, and um, maybe we'll save that for the uh, for the draft podcast that we have coming up. But I mean, if you look at the this. They still have three stars. They still have top coaching, management, and culture. Um, Clay Thompson is able to take over an entire playoff series. I'm going to say that again because I think people undervalue Clay Thompson. He is a top three two-way player in the league if you're talking about defensively and offensively, being able to to guard at a high level and play offense at a high level. Wait, can we I mean, can just, we sidebar right there? Who's Who do you have one and two? Well, I, ha- I don't have Durant in that conversation right now, but I have LeBron and I have um, Kawhi in that conversation. Guys who can stretch the floor and do everything on offense, like obviously Giannis. You're talking about other great players. So this is a conversation where you're talking about only the three-point shooters of the great players. right? So Giannis is not a, a, three, a scoring f- threat from three levels. He's not a three-point shooter. Right, so... So he doesn't get to be in the conversation. Okay. And not in that list. <laughs> okay. But <laughs> well, that's a, what, a, what a conveniently curated list. <laughs> um, but you add Kevon Looney to their core. Eric Paschal is going to be a huge part of their core. Um, 
and and then you know whatever <laughs> sorry, happens with Wiggins. Sorry, hold on, let me laugh at that. <laughs> you want a sidebar there, Adam? You want to talk about Eric Pascal? Eric Pascal is going to be a huge part of their core. Okay. Yes. Well, Off the bench, absolutely. He's the, he's in their top eight. I don't think I don't think anyone, at least anyone with with half a brain, is gonna bet against the Warriors if if they've got Draymond, Clay, and Steph all healthy next year. Um, bet against them. When I say that, I, I mean bet against them to be in the conversation, not to be, uh, you know, the they're not going to necessarily be the obvious championship team or anything. But you know, that's that's a core that had the best regular season in NBA history. Um, obviously, they didn't do it just by themselves. But as you're as you're getting to Josh, um, they will have good players around them. As you already noted, they have good coaching and management and culture and all of that stuff. So I, I'm with you on on the Warriors still very much being in the conversation uh, when next season rolls around. And and it's important for us to bring them up because two podcasts ago we made a list of the teams that were potential contenders next year if the season was over so that we could see where the Celtics ranked in that. So if you haven't listened to that, check out that podcast. Uh and we left the Warriors out of that list. That, but the reason we list. left them out of that list was because it was it was who was going to be most impacted by this season ending abruptly of the ne- of next season's prospective contenders. I don't think it matters to the Warriors. Their season's over anyways. So we were talking about interesting storylines for next year's contenders if the season just ended abruptly. Like, for example, with Milwaukee, all of a sudden Giannis would have one year left on his contract and and yeah. they, if he didn't extend so that that's why the warrior the warriors were not omitted because of a lack of of um belief in their ability to be in that conversation well the sooner the season ends the sooner we'll know what's going on with wiggins and that draft pick and then and uh, as well you know what they're going to do in free agency they're going to be huge players in in free agency what um <laughs> getting 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 veterans to sign on and and, and try to win a ring with them because i think I think they're they're close to retooling. They got seven a core of seven guys right now, including Wiggins, that what's, are ready to go. What's the likelihood you think they keep Wiggins to start next season? How how 20, or, or let's put it twenty percent. How how much does Bob Myers want to get rid of Andrew Wiggins? Not as much as he wanted to get rid of D'Angelo Russell. <laughs> well, clearly, <laughs> I think there's a twenty percent chance that Wiggins is still on the team. There, he has some value there. I just don't see it working out. I just think he's he's not a winning player, right? I mean, I, I you got to think that Draymond's gonna like it's gonna be like Jimmy Butler. He's gonna play with him like for three weeks with you know, and it's one thing for Draymond to kind of be the good soldier when Steph and Clay are both injured, but when when you know they've got all their guys and they have a chance at actually winning, Draymond's not gonna tolerate a guy that doesn't play to win. And Draymond's probably just gonna destroy Wiggins' psyche if whatever's left of it after Jimmy. So the last piece of this conversation, uh, because people love this, is the matchups, right? So just imagine for a second, we're playing the Warriors. All right, you obviously you got the Kemba versus Steph Curry matchup. You got the the Clay Thompson matchup. Who's guarding Clay? Jalen Brown. Exactly. There's only one answer to that. Jalen Brown is going to be locking up Clay. Um, obviously, Hayward will get some minutes on him as well. Who's Draymond Green going to guard? Tatum? 
Yes. It depends. You have to put your best defender on, on the star of the other team. So just, the, you know, we have some really I fun think, matchups. Wait, you, I think Clay would guard Tatum. No way. Why not? I think that Draymond Green is going to be in the locker room saying, I got Tatum. This, <laughs> this kid is not as good as y'all think he is. I'm going to shut him down. Coach, I, I'm guarding him. I think I think you want. He's not guarding. I think, I think no. Why not? I think you want um, Draymond to be able to be as much of a free safety as possible, because he's so smart and he's so able to cover so much ground. You don't. Draymond doesn't typically glue to the opponent's best player, does he? I mean, unless except for LeBron, but that I mean, was even that was like switch. Clay and 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 Draymond split duties on LeBron, like. Yeah, you're always going to have switching and you're always going to be guarding everybody because everybody's switchable and that's why you created the teams the way the Celtics did after the Warriors image. And you know, <laughs> so so yeah, I mean this is it's a moot point if you're really you know going to talk think that Draymond's going to just be glued to Jason Tatum all game. Obviously there's going to be defensive rotations. Um, but when you have Kevon Looney and Draymond playing the 4 and the 5, you know, someone's got to guard Tice, someone's got to guard the next biggest guy like Tatum unless you're trying to have one of those guys go way down and, and chase around Jalen Brown or Gordon Hayward or something like that. I just don't see that happening. I don't think Kevon Looney is going to be in their best five, is he? Yeah, he's a start. he was a starter on their championship team. I mean, bearing, barring the, the, his recovery from injury, which should happen by next year. And if not, the they've got Cole. Eric Pascal coming off the bench, who's a impact player. <laughs> Eric Pascal is going to be a part of their core, man. He's he's. If you look at all yeah. the bums they have on their team, he's the one guy. They're like, okay, well, we have to keep him. Everybody else is is tradable or <laughs> releasable. My favorite things- thing about the Warriors, this will take one second, is that they have taken all of Phoenix Suns. What was it, 2015 draft class or whatever it was? They've got <laughs> Marquise, Chris, and Dragon Bender. <laughs> <laughs> rentals back back resuscitated yeah hurts putting okay. putting them through the warriors rejuvenation machine <laughs> budget rent a car the things we discuss when there are no games like the potential future finals matchup between the celtics and warriors in a year or two years and uh and uh the last dance bulls dynasty can we move on yeah so we're talking about uh, these these dynasties, the, the Golden State Warriors, the Bulls dynasty a lot. That's just everybody's talking about that. We refuse to. Um, everybody's was talking about this Bulls dynasty, like they're they're unbelievable. Do you remember them making anyone want to quit playing basketball? I think Anybody they made the Patrick Ewing want to quit <laughs> basketball. I think yeah. his move to Seattle made him want to quit basketball. Anybody on the uh, on uh, um, yeah, just so nobody. I mean, John Starks didn't wasn't like you know what this is too hard. I'm leaving. Uh, n- nobody on Utah was ready to to retire, were they? Why are you bringing this up? So our next quit. so our next segment is stories from Celtics history, and I want to tell you guys about how the Celtics dynasty of the '60s made a player want to quit basketball. So when we compared legit, when we compare dynasties was this a good player we can't forget the celtics so last last time for stories from celtics history we talked about how clifford ray saved the dolphins life today i'm going to tell you about how the celtics uh dynasty of the 60s they were so good they made jerry west the logo want to quit basketball stop it 
<laughs> you're pandering now. Okay. So look, uh, if you're a, a, a listener to this podcast, you likely know that the Celtics uh, have the greatest dynasty in, in modern professional uh, Western sports history. Uh, this team won 11 championships in 13 years. So from 1956, 57, which was Bill Russell's first year to his last year in 1969, when he was the player coach, they won 11 of 13. Jerry West, he comes into the league in 1960, 61. And for his first 11 years, he cannot, uh, he, he gets to the, the playoffs um, uh, every season except two. And he loses six times in the finals. Um, he, he gets to the finals and loses seven times. He, he loses six of those to the Celtics. And I just want to read to you a quote that he had about, about losing. He said, I didn't think it was fair that you could give so much and maybe play until there was nothing left in your body to give and you couldn't win. I don't think people really understand the trauma associated with losing. I don't think people realize how miserable you can be and me in particular. I was terrible. I got to the point where, uh, with me that I wanted to quit basketball. It was like a slap in the face. Like, we're not going to let you win. We don't care how well you play. I always thought it was personal. That's from a, a um, Richard Lazenby's uh, um, book about Jerry West, The Life and Legend of a Basketball Icon. And this is continuously against the Celtics. So it like progressively gets worse through his first 11, 11 seasons, just losing repeatedly to the Celtics. Uh, and then um, in 1969, his, this is his, his team with Wilt Chamberlain. Um, and Elgin he, Baylor, right? And Elgin Baylor, yeah, but but Wilts joins the team because because they can't. Uh, so West had four um, Hall of Famers on his team: um, Elgin Baylor, Gail Goodrich joined, Connie Hawkins for one year at, in his last season. But they add Wilt in '69, and he's supposed to bring them over the top. They face the Celtics. This is their last. The Celtics, uh, uh, Russell's last year. They're all burned out. Uh, West feels like they were absolutely the better team. And they get to the to game seven, um, and this is the game where the uh, the owner Jack Kent Cook of the Lakers uh, is anticipating that they're going to win the game, and and so much so that he orders thousands of balloons with the with world's champion Lakers printed on them to be put in the rafters. And he puts a flyer on every seat stating, quote, when, not if, the Lakers win the title, balloons will be released from the rafters, the USC marching band will play, happy days are here again, and broadcaster Chick Hurd will interview Elgin Baylor, Jerry West, and Will Chamberlain in that order. So, of course, the Celtics get wind of this, and they circulate a memo about all of these celebration plans. And Jerry West goes out to the court for his pregame shoot-around, sees the balloons, and becomes furious with his owner. Russell sees them and turns to West and says, those effing balloons are staying up there. And then in the game, uh, this is the also the game where uh, Will Chamberlain injures his knee and goes to sit down on the bench. And then the the um, coach, uh, Van Brindikoff or whatever his name is, uh, at Russell's like says, hey, I'm ready to come back in. And he and the coach had been fighting all year long. And the coach is like, we're doing fine without you. And then, uh, a, <laughs> an, then an arid ball, like a loose ball, bounces towards Don Nelson, and he takes his like eighteen footer that bounces way up into the air, and then comes back down and and goes in the basket to, to as as like the go to put them up by five and and kind of seal the victory. Uh, 
and then and then they lose. And then after the game, so so Jerry West at this point had this like mythical status. Like he he is seen in popular culture as um as this valiant figure who wins and wins and wins, but is always doomed by this like inevitable fate to lose in the end. And even the Celtics uh, felt that way about him. Russell, after celebrating, Russell and other Celtics went into the Lakers locker room basically to console West and to tell them how great he thought he was. They all thought he was. <laughs> okay, so let, let me tell you a little bit more, okay? So um, so that's that's in 69. Then finally, uh, the the uh, Russell retires. Now they might have a, ch- a chance. The Celtics don't even make the finals. And in the next year... Uh, the Lakers go up against the 1970 New York Knicks, which is the Willis Reed game where he comes back from injury and wins the game. So then West loses again. Um, and then I think they missed, they missed the finals the year after that. And then they finally end up winning in 1972 against the Knicks before losing again to the Knicks in the finals in West's final season in 73. Uh, but West, who is a guy that had a lot of trauma in his life, he grew up poor. His father physically abused him to the point that he said that uh, West said that he slept with a loaded shotgun under his bed out of fear that he might have to kill his father in self-defense. And he was, so, and he was also deeply affected by losing his older brother who died in the Korean war. West said that this, this period of 11 years of losing was the most disgusting period in my entire life. Um, he said, I wanted to win a championship. Uh, and he said he felt that way despite this history of trauma, um, in an interview, <laughs> In 2017 with with Graham Bensinger, which you can find on YouTube, a tearful Jerry West said, I haven't been to Boston since I stopped playing basketball. I am still tormented by those losses. I honestly wanted to quit. I was in the prime of my career and I didn't want to play basketball anymore. It was like the lowest point that you could possibly have been in in your life. Could you you imagine if Jerry West had to deal with Twitter? But it, but it's better than losing all the time. Like he was one of the best players of all time and won a ton in his career. Obviously, it's it is traumatic to always to never get over the hump and, and finally win it, right? But you, you look would, at other guys like Barkley, who and Malone, who never won it. You know, like they're not sitting around saying like this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. This is a huge. This is my life's biggest trauma. The fact that I win, 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 and then always lose in the end. Like what about career losers? Who actually were on terrible teams and and never won anything? Yeah, the, but the problem with the problem with them is career losers probably don't care as much as he did. Like there to, you go. to be as great as he was, he had to care at a level. You know, I don't know who's a who's, a, who's an all time career loser. <laughs> I don't know. Doesn't matter. You get it. So that is a story from Celtics history. Brilliant. That is that is that is wonderful. I did not know all of those details. Um, I didn't know his life was so traumatic. That's uh, it's pretty intense. And, yeah. and we can we can round out his his accolades or his storyline by you know talking about how he has been one of the best front office executives in the history of the game. Has has kind of changed the way a lot of executives create rosters and build rosters. Um, and even in his old age, when he was kind of thought of as like past his prime by the Lakers, um, you know, he was able to go to Memphis and then go to the Clippers and rebuild that. 
and has really pulled off some masterful moves. And the Warriors, he helped out too. Exactly, as a as a as a uh, advisor or whatever. Advisor, thank you. Isn't he consulting the Clippers now? Yes, now yeah, he's with the Clippers. Yeah, so in my opinion, he's he's most likely to um, to get another ring this year once the season commences again. And he, you know, you talk about the top GMs and executives in the entire league, and he's on that list with Danny Ainge, you know, and, and a few others. Maybe we can get that list out to you all uh, on a future podcast. That's something we've been toying around with, as well as uh, doing a little draft podcast. We've got a special guest who may come on. And uh, yeah, definitely going to have some draft conversation for you in the next few weeks. Yeah, I listening. Go ahead, Mike. Before we before we uh, wind wind this down, I, I do need to plug something totally unrelated to to Celtics blog, but it's uh, the Bleacher Reports Game of Zones. If anybody that is listening to us has not watched that already, you absolutely have to. It just had its season or series finale. It's like seven seasons of about ten to twelve minute animated clips uh, of the NBA kind of in a game game of Thrones like universe. It's absolutely unbelievable creative genius. And as Celtics fans, especially uh, you will deeply appreciate many things that happened in this final season. And I don't want to ruin anything. I just need to advocate you. You have to watch it. You don't even have to watch all of them. You can just watch season seven. It's brilliant. I concur. Keep listening, rate us, subscribe, download. Thanks, everyone. Peace out.